Welcome to The Lucent Perspective. I'm your host, Rebecca Hastings. I've spent over a decade working with executives in the tech sector and help successful companies build their leadership teams and scale. During my career, I've been lucky to have the privilege of learning from many exceptional leaders. In these conversations, you'll get perspectives from peers, be inspired, and learn what it takes to become one of the best. This is your chance to listen to experts talking about the challenges, solutions, and the vital insights they've gained in their careers to date. People have struggled to leave behind the mindset that AI is a chatbot. But the reality is to get a really to get a really effective AI solution, you have to integrate it sensitively into your existing systems, really quite surgically. Today, I'm joined by Gary Crawford, who is returning as my first returning guest. Gary's the Chief Innovation Officer at Warcall, and he is going to be talking to us a little bit more about what AI means for businesses and technology teams. Gary actually joined me on episode five, How Can Enterprise Companies Leverage AI? This time, we're going to focus a bit more on what this means for software development teams in particular and cover off any updates from what the last like eight, nine months. Like it's certainly been some time since we spoke about this in detail. So this episode is for you. If you kind of want to get this element demystified or you're seeking a fresh perspective, um, we're going to cover what's changing, how AI is also changing development and what this means a bit more for the software teams that you're building, how they're going to be structured and the kind of talents that are required to build the best software out there. So thanks very much for joining me again, Gary. It's great to see you. Thanks, Rebecca. How do you see AI transforming the types of software products and experiences that are being developed now? Well, I guess that's a massive question. And the last year um, really has seen some some phenomenal progress. Uh, I was speaking with the Waracle uh, team at the Town Hall just before Christmas, uh, and I took out a mid-journey image that was created one year ago versus the exact same command prompt that was created uh, just before Christmas. Um, and the quality of the the output um, today versus what we were getting just a year ago is is absolutely phenomenal. Um, we've seen very similar types of progress with large language models. You know, they've come from a position where, for the very first time, people are able to touch and interact with what's probably quite a misunderstood technology. You know, I think all of our ideas around uh, around AI has come from Hollywood, has come from the media, um, doesn't tend to portray the very best picture of it. You know, the common story is AI goes mad and, and kills people. Um, whereas I think for the first time last year, we got to touch it, we got to interact with it. And then you saw the very rapid progress of open source models coming through, very rapid progress in proprietary models as well. Um, so where we are today is very different, I think, to where we were um, this time last year. And I think that's going to have a massive impact on on a number of different things, um, in particular around product development. I think we're slowly now, and this is a great thing, starting to see people's ideas of AI being a chatbot start to dissolve and we're starting to see how um, artificial intelligence can start to integrate much more sympathetically, much more subtly into different digital experiences. Um, I think you've got teams like the the team at Clio, for example, that are doing a phenomenal mm-hmm. job of, of integrating um, AI into uh, into essentially a, a financial product, you know, so finding really yeah. good ways to work around some of the 
regulatory challenges, but to provide a hyper-personalized, um, really useful service that helps people improve their their, uh, their personal finances. Um, seeing similar things with Spotify with their AI DJ, um, seeing similar things in the healthcare space as well, around the automation of radiology reports and the interpretation of results from in there. Um, I think one of my favorites um, from over the last year is from a company called Wobot, um, who have a product which helps people that are in a mental health crisis. Perhaps they don't have access to the support that they need in that moment, so they're able to interact with this chatbot. Now, the obvious um, fear, the, the alarms that would be going off in many people's heads when you say that is, do we really trust large language models or generative AI to be responded to people that are in crisis? But what I think the team there has done this incredibly well and comes back to your, your question really is they're using the large language models for the interpretation of the human language, not for the generation of the human language. So it's little techniques like that that are really allowing us to start to see how we can use these much more broadly in, in digital products and digital experiences. And that's great that you've highlighted some very creative applications of AI and some things which are quite meaningful because we do hear a lot of doom and gloom, fear-mongering. I'm, I'm sure that sells um, advertising and newspapers and all of those types of things. But the reality is that there's a lot of positive that can happen from this and you know, transforming people's finances, you know, even just things that are lots of fun. I'm all for that. <laughs> so what kind of new capabilities is AI allowing in terms of like features and end user applications. So you, you highlighted a couple of things there, but it'd be great to get a few more examples of you know, those subtle tweaks rather than just generative text. Yeah. So I think the, the starting point um, for that conversation, I would say really is that you don't need to throw out all of your existing digital investments in order to pursue something that's AI-based or AI-enabled. Um, some of the best examples we're, we're starting to see of AI being implemented um, in new features and new capabilities is integrating into um, existing products and services, existing brownfield products and services. Um, with the right architectural approaches, you can actually you can bring the AI to the surface at the right point in time to achieve something really quite exciting for customers. That could be, for example, in customer service, um, where you have an agent that's able to remember all aspects of a particular user's account. They're able to respond in a much more conversational way. They're able to help in a much more personalized and contextualized way for that, that person. Um, another place where I think we're, we're starting to see this really make a difference is in sales. Um, in particular, I'd say around really complex uh, sales, things that require uh, perhaps a big financial investment from the customer or something that's particularly challenging. Um, if you think in the energy space, for example, um, you know, is a heat pump the right thing for a retail customer? Um, are solar panels the right thing? Do you need a battery if you're going to have the solar panels? Things that require real expert input um, and expert sales, we're able to start seeing those complex sales generally start to be simplified um, with AI. Um, I think another area um, that, that's particularly interesting is where we're starting to see scale coming into businesses um, using AI to be able to reach that scale. Um, I, again, I think healthcare is a great example. Um, it's argued that around 40% of a radiologist's time is working on reports. If we can use That's AI... Crazy. 
Yeah, it, it's phenomenal. And you're right at a point when you look at the NHS and other healthcare systems around the world being under such incredible stress. There's been a massive increase in diagnostic imagery uh, over the last few years, which isn't fantastic, but there's not been a corresponding increase in clinical radiologists to be able to interpret that data. So we've got systems that are under a huge amount of strain um, and we've got this incredibly rich source of diagnostic um, information, but we're not able to we're not able to take advantage of that. So if you if we were able to use AI to take away some of that forty percent of the report interpretation or even report generation uh, and start to focus all of those skills into the highest priority cases where the most vulnerable people need the support of those those clinicians and radiologists the most, you know that that's really exciting. Um, so that's the kind of expert system, expert guidance. Um, and to some extent, that, that kind of Pareto curve of how can we take 80% of the, the workload uh, away and just focus all of the expertise in that 20%. Um, I think I think it could go on and on about different use cases. Yeah. We've seen a huge number of them in, you know, in energy and healthcare and financial services. But as I said, and I think I actually said this uh, the last time we, we spoke about this, Rebecca, for me at the moment, AI is it's a design challenge much more than it is a technology challenge. The technology challenge, the technology challenges, I wouldn't say it's been solved, but we've gotten to a level of maturity already where we can do incredible things way beyond what we're already doing. Um, the big challenge now is thinking holistically about the user experience. How can we integrate AI safely, intuitively, sympathetically into existing experiences to help us do things that we haven't been able to do before um, that's where the big challenge is. And to do that in a way that doesn't um, doesn't compromise on privacy, it doesn't compromise on safety, it doesn't compromise on bias. Um, those are design challenges. We need to think slightly yeah. differently about the design than we did before, um, but they are design challenges and there's a huge amount. So what are the key questions that developers should be asking themselves as they build more of this software? And you've touched on the ethics, but are there any kind of like practical tips you can give? Yeah, I am... I, um, I actually gave a talk just a, a couple of months before ChatGPT came out at uh, uh, a major uh, uh, retail bank. And I think the advice that I gave at the end of that talk probably fell in deaf ears, but it's more important now than it ever has been, is I think technologists of all kinds need to diversify their skill set really quickly. They need, to, they need to be thinking much more about the experience, much more about the user, much more about what should we build and why as opposed to necessarily all of the implementation details. Um, I'm, uh, if I'm completely honest, somewhat post-technical now. Um, I do come from a development background. I spent a huge number of years and I deeply love technology of all kinds, but um, I think anybody would be terrified if I sat down to pair code with them these days. However, um, over the last few weeks, I've been experimenting with different co-pilots. I've been getting back into Clojure, Java, C Sharp here and there. Um, and what I'm finding is I can be as productive as I've ever been when I was really on the tools the whole time just by having um, the support of a co-pilot there to guide me in certain ways. Now, Great. I think the key thing here is I still, to some extent, understand what good looks like. I might not quite know how to do it with the, the, the most recent kind of syntactical sugar or the most recent frameworks, but I still know what good looks like. Um, so if I know what I want to achieve for a customer, the experience I want to create, and I know roughly what good looks like from a technical approach, 
then you can start to lean on um, systems like co-pilots and so on to help fill in the gaps in the in-between. Um, so I can become really quite productive uh, and achieve a huge amount in a small amount of time, despite yeah. being somewhat post-technical, just because I understand what are we looking to do with the user, how do I get this in front of the user really early, and how do I lean on the AI, not just to create new and exciting features, but to actually accelerate that development approach as well. You touched on a couple of things there that I find really interesting. You know, so those questions like, what is the experience I'm looking to create? You know, what what is the, what's the user experience, the user journey, um, the design that's going to work for them? Those are things that have often been an afterthought, but might start to become a bit more of a starting place for some people. Then you talked yeah. like about how you know what good looks like. And I have been speaking to quite a few CTOs and when they are looking for key people to join their team at the moment, a phrase that comes up over and over again is setting the standards, um, raising the standards. You know, people are obviously very conscious that, you know, they can maximise the potential of less experienced, more junior software engineers in their team, but they can't do that effectively without uh, a trained eye. Yeah. That's, um, that's good to know. If, if things don't work out, then you know, give, give me a call. You can set the standards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, 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 standards, um, that standards point is really interesting. And I think we're seeing more than ever um, you know, different groups like you know, developer boot camps and so on. There's probably a growing role for groups like that because I think a year to two years ago, um, some businesses were very forward thinking and embraced um, embraced people coming through boot camps and worked with them to develop their career. Um, but I think in many ways it had to be a proactive decision to invest in people and think about the long term, which isn't always something that every every business is in a position to do. Yeah. Um, however, now that we're seeing AI being able to augment the capabilities of people, really enhance employee capabilities, whether it's technologists, designers, whatever. Um, I think we're at a point where people who come through less typical um, education channels have got more of an opportunity to be able to be supported into roles where they can become really productive and really effective yeah. quickly. Um, so I think that's that's exciting. And if I'm honest, uh, and I'm a bit of a hypocrite here because I, I do have a, a university education, um, but it's always been a bit of a bugbear of mine that technologists in particular are qualified by having a degree first of all and then whatever they've gone on to do when there's some exceptionally talented people who will never get remotely close to university but could do a really yeah. good job in many enterprises definitely um so there's a lot of scope there to boost social inclusion as well as Absolutely. you know diversity of thought and you know that's there could be a lot of benefits to actually having people who've been through a boot camp if you're looking for fresh perspectives around users but for me when you're talking about that one thing that springs to mind is is there going to be a new role where you have someone who's almost like a standards coach within the team, um, you know, different from a typical like senior engineer or lead engineer, but someone whose job is really just to set standards and educate a little bit more internally? Mm. It, it's, it's interesting. I've seen scenarios where that type of role can be very effective. Um, I've also mm -hmm. seen scenarios where it can be quite damaging as well. Um, okay. You know, so sometimes when you get somebody that starts, if that role starts to evolve into being the gatekeeper of all of the things, and then you've got late feedback cycles where things get thrown back over the fence to 
developer teams and, you know, it starts to break the flow and, you, you know, it can be really quite disruptive um, to get things out, uh, out the door. Um, you know, and when I say getting things out the door, I'm assuming in that that these things are robust, they're scalable, they're well, well designed. Um, so I think quality really, you have to create an environment for quality to flourish. You have to get the foundations in place. You know, you have to be practicing all the good things like continuous delivery and uh, you have to have automated testing in there. And, you know, you know that you're building that, that single artifact in every single build and that one single thing will be what gets pushed through to production if it gets promoted there. You know, all of those different practices and structures and culture in many ways that goes into building robust software, I think is, is really, really important. When it comes to the standards, um, you know, to some extent, um, and I think we've got more development to do in this space, but you can lean on things like co-pilots to be able to provide nudges and guidance in, in those kinds of areas. Um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a parallel here between uh, what was the original idea of the DevOps movement and then what has it become today? Quite often it's become a team that's centralised and responsible for certain aspects of deployment and, and so on. But is that, that was never the intent of the DevOps movement. It was always about yeah. um, integrating um, these capabilities and allowing the developers to take more responsibility for promoting their code into the right environment. So I think if we're saying, is there a new role in the sense of um, you know, somebody that can coach and promote and support teams to be able to take ownership of those uh, guidelines and standards themselves? That could be a really powerful thing. However, if it becomes a siloed um, authority that throws things back over the, the fence with late feedback cycles and stuff, I think that could be risky. So it depends on the implementation, I think. Yeah. And it also depends on the like workplace culture. It sounds like you need a lot of psychological safety and how people collaborate is going to be way, way more important as we move forwards. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how is AI transforming development workflows, the kind of processes and methodologies? You've touched on a few things there, but I'd love to hear more. Mm. So I think um, th there was a, I don't know whether we call them tweets still or X's or, or whatever it is, but Andrew, uh, Andre Kaparthi, um, a, a really well-known developer just a few months ago, tweeted that the majority of his time now is, uh, is reviewing essentially code that um, is generated by AI systems. Um, I think that probably is going to continue to be the direction of travel. Um, one of the things that AI does for us is it takes a, a production job and turns it into a consumption job. So if I were to ask you, Rebecca, to write me an article of some kind, for example, you'd probably come back to me in three or four weeks' time and you know give me an article or a you know, take a look at it, that'd be wonderful. But it, that production process, creating that article, takes quite a loss of time. Um, whereas if I gave you an article and said, Rebecca, could you red pen this and tell me where you think I've gone wrong or give me some some uh, constructive feedback in different places, you'd probably do that in 10, 15 minutes. Um, so consumption and correction is much, much faster than original production. Uh, and I think that's one of the, the biggest workflow changes that we're going to see. Um, I think we need to find the balance where, as, as we were saying earlier in the conversation, um, people need to still know what good looks like. If you don't have a really good sense of what good looks like and whether or not something's going to be effective for what you need, then we're probably still going to run into challenges. However, if we're able to strike that balance, we're able to get 
um, that understanding of what good looks like um, combined with the generative capabilities of AI, then I think the the production process, the development process could potentially become much more effective. I think there's other areas of the, the development process. And obviously, and, and to some extent, kind of jumped past the experiential piece here and talking purely from a, a technology perspective. But things like property-based testing, I think, has mm-hmm. not has had for many years huge amounts of potential, but it's never really had the uptake. Um, so being able to define what you expect a behavior to be and then to leverage the AI to then test out at scale and at speed all of the different things that potentially could break that rule set, that, that's, that's really exciting. And that could really help to harden the systems and, and help to uh, help to eradicate some some bugs even security threats and different things as well. So that's probably another area where where that would um, that would start to play out. I think interesting. It sounds yeah. like after sorry, it, it sounds like after years of you know really focusing very much on automated testing, and you know, that's been a huge focus for businesses. There's like a growing importance again for maybe the more manual side of testing. Potentially, yeah. 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 Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I think that could be the case. It's, it's interesting to some extent. Businesses that have spent a huge amount of time focusing on automated testing, um, you know that that has an incredible benefit in giving you robustness, giving you confidence. You know, to the extent that you you've got good good coverage uh, and you're testing the right things. Uh, however, it does make things somewhat slower to change, um, and I do I do have an open question in my mind around how do you start to test systems where you have no idea what the output is going to be. So, if we start to integrate um, AI, generative AI in particular, into uh, into the digital products and, and services that we're building, we've got no way of knowing. Um, what the input's going to be or what the output's going to be and whether or not that system works. So so to that extent, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and that, that probably comes back to a much more foundational um, kind of principle around building digital products with AI. Um, until now, we, we've, I mean, essentially since the 1950s when we started building software, we've got really, really, really good at, uh, constraining the inputs, constraining the types of problems that we're, we're willing to solve and giving a fixed number of outputs that match uh, very carefully to the, the inputs and the processing that we're doing. Um, it's been essential that we do that um, because obviously software hasn't traditionally been very good at handling ambiguity. Um, you know, yeah. you can't give an unlimited number of user inputs and just be able to handle it in the software. Um, so we've got really, really good at sanitizing our context, uh, constraining the user on what they're trying to do, and being really, really rigorous and rigid around what the, the output is. Um, obviously, that, that touches into the, the QA side of things, I think, because you're, if we move to a world now where we're generating dynamically and we're giving the user much more flexibility about what they can ask of a system or what they can say to a system and how that system chooses to respond to it, you know, deterministic testing is no longer going to work in that environment. And actually that extends across many other roles in, in a product team as well. So, you know, your stakeholder perhaps isn't going to be able to quite as clearly define the problem spaces that we're going after. Uh, an analyst perhaps isn't going to define the very specific things that we're going to resolve, the processes that go into those and what we expect the outputs to be, because 
we're shifting that intelligence from design time down into the hands um, of the user and the product um, at the point when those two things come together. Um, so I think the workflows for product teams uh, and for organizations in general, they have to change. Um, they yes. fundamentally have to change if we're going to take that intelligence close to the user and embed it into the products. And the thing that I find quite fun uh, about this is decentralizing decision-making down into product teams is something that many different movements, the, the Agile movement, the, the Lean movement, various different other groups as well, um, have been trying to do for decades, you could argue, really. Um, so I think we've got a massive change in front, of, in front of us now where until then it's been a decision. It's been a belief system as to whether or not certain people in some positions or in other positions or within a team um, should be taking decisions. Whereas to leverage AI effectively, you have to decentralize decision-making um, down to the AI that's operating in the product and you have to give much more control to the user over what they're able to do. Um, so basically, in order to to leverage AI effectively, we have to fundamentally move away from centralized senior decision-making and bring that down closer to the product and closer to the product teams. Something we've been trying to do for years. Some businesses have become really good at it. Um, but that's going to become a real bottleneck um, for any business that wants to adopt AI. That's really interesting. I, th I think it will you know, change the shape, the size of teams as well, in ways that we, we can't quite see yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, we've become much more aware uh, over recent years that very small, fast-moving, nimble teams can quite often achieve much more than larger scaled teams. And we know for sure that uh, if something's running late, adding more people into the mix isn't going to help. So I think you're right, but having the right co-pilot, the right support, um, the right types of thinking, and deconstructing the problem down into small uh, composable pieces that that will definitely allow much smaller, fast-moving teams to to operate, achieve achieve some really cool things. Definitely, I can see that planning for a project is going to be way more important to success um, moving forwards. I mean, it's always been critical, but people may value that kind of process a little bit more rather than let's just get on and build the first bit. Maybe thinking things through in their entirety will reduce the cost of delivery and, you know, increase the speed of delivery? Potentially, yeah. I think there's probably a corresponding risk to that, um, which is we don't know how the public at large are really going to respond to AI-enabled features and capabilities. Um, there's always the risk for the, the kind of Google Glass scenario where you could argue that Google Glass wasn't necessarily a bad product. The public just wasn't ready for it as a product yet. Um, so in, in that world where there's a huge amount of uncertainty, um, I think we have to prioritize small teams that move quickly, they experiment huge amounts, and they get things in front of users really, really fast. Um, I would much rather we experimented with something, got in front of users within two, three weeks, and we got some really good feedback than we, we went into elaborate planning sessions and, and we, we believed we knew where we were going for the next six months. Um, I think that's going to be true now more than ever um, as we start to see how the public react to features, capabilities, even new products and services, uh, or maybe even new business models that start to creep up off the back of AI. 
So there needs to still be that kind of like agile approach so that we can absolutely. react. Well, there's so much that is unknown. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think, I think agile has become a bit of a bad word. I think people have become quite disenfranchised with agile over the years, but the reality is the finding principles are still really strong. They're still really valuable. Um, I think as people's experiences uh, of agile and quite often, if we're honest, you know, scaled agile and some of those, those kind of larger frameworks, that's where the negative experience is. But if you boil it down to the principles and you just have fast moving teams, AI enabled and getting things in front of customers and experimenting really fast. Um, you know, that, that I think makes a lot of sense. Are there any tools that you've seen that have like significantly improved or aided the kind of progress and performance of developers? Um, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. I think there's a few different things that are coming together. So you're starting to see uh, many more systems that sit across an organizational kind of intellectual property, knowledge base, so they're exposing information much more easily and readily than we were able to do before. Um, there's some examples where that's starting to tip into the communication side of things as well. Um, I think where I've seen these mostly, they're not commercial off-the-shelf products at the moment, is enterprises that are investing in improving communication and collaboration within their organization. So these yeah. can be things, for example, that understand that Rebecca's working on this system over here. Gary, it looks like you're going to do something quite similar to Rebecca. Why don't you two connect? So you almost get this communication there that sits on top of all of the organization's IP, practice, process, culture, knowledge, uh, and existing kind of products or projects or, or whatever your, your kind of paradigm is. Um, so I think that kind of thing, just generally improving collaboration, communication, and awareness is, is definitely one. Uh, we've touched on, on things like co-pilots, obviously. Um, you know, I've been using Cursor over the last while, but there's there's a, a large number of different um, yeah. of different products coming through in that space. Uh, I saw a really interesting uh, keynote from uh, from the team at Shopify, I think it was, yeah. uh, when they were going into how much uh, co-pilots are starting to influence um, influence what they're doing. Uh, some really insightful things that, that, that were in that. We, I'm sure we can provide the, the, the talk in the, in the notes at the end. Um, so again, those, those co-pilots I think are valuable. Some other areas that I think we'll see come through in 2024 much more is the use of other areas of generative AI that are perhaps less linked to large language models, things like diffusion models and so on, for the generation of images. Um, I know that, that some of our design team are using uh, using those types of imagery and, and different things that they're they're creating and working on in the digital space. Um, but I think there's there's probably a bit more work to happen there before it really really becomes a viable alternative to uh, to using kind of large stock libraries and stuff. There's there's a bit more work to do, yeah. but they're, they're they're really progressing. Um, I think the final thing I'd maybe mention um, in relation to to develop the teams and building products is we're starting to see more systems coming through now, which are able to very rapidly generate um, ideas or concepts for uh, for the design side of things. Um, tools like Galileo, for example, where you can give it a description uh, and it will give you then um, a, a kind of suggested layout. And as many times as you hit refresh, it will give you you know new layouts and. You know, I think again a year ago, you know, anything that was doing that type of generation, we probably wouldn't trust. But the 
these things are yeah. really starting to improve. Um, they don't replace a designer. Uh, but what they do is allow a designer to perhaps iterate and explore much more fluidly and much more quickly to come up with new ideas and, and to ideate a little bit faster. Um, so some of those kind of things I think are, are very valuable. The, there's another layer that's starting to, to emerge on top of that now, where if you give a design uh, to some of these AI systems, and I'm struggling to remember the name off the top of my head, I, I can come back on it. Um, it will take that design and turn it into React components, for example, which again Amazing. has got a huge amount of um, huge amount of potential. I think one of the things that we'll see in twenty four and twenty five is as AI rapidly continues to progress towards commoditized, what you start to see. Simon Wadley speaks about this a, a huge amount. Is as things move towards commodity, you start to see a whole pile of higher order services popping up on top of those things that simplify life and make things more efficient to make things more effective. That's, I think, what we'll start to see. Tools like Galileo and so on starting to crop up on top of these uh, AI-enabled um, uh, tools. I think there's going to be much more of that happens over the course of the, the next year or two. I want to discuss a little bit more about what this means for software engineering teams in terms of talent. So yeah. how should software businesses start thinking about building their teams with these AI capabilities in mind? What, what's changing? What are, what are you looking for that's different or what, what's evolved? Yeah. The, the mindset shift um, from my perspective is it really is about that experiential side. It's, it's partly around strategy and vision at the organizational level. Um, but then I think once you come down, it's, it's around what do we build and why? That that really is the, the big change. Um, people have struggled to, to leave behind the mindset that AI is a chatbot. Um, but the reality is to get a really to get a really effective AI solution, you have to integrate it sensitively into your existing systems, really quite surgically. Um, yeah. You know, could it be used to improve navigation? Could it be used to personalize more? Could it be used to just add some clarity around some complex information in an account screen, for example? You know, so these are centralized things that sit in the corner with a clippy uh, kind of image beside it. These are things that are integrated throughout the overall experience. Um, so that part of it, I would say, comes down to some strategic thinking, some creative thinking, some experiential thinking about how we pull these things together. When it actually comes to the, the development of these things itself, um, to some extent, there's not a huge amount of changes. It's, it's really not that difficult. When, what you're, you're really looking to do is make some API calls and integrate something effectively into the, the surface that you're looking to put it into. So... All of the skills that went before are still every bit as relevant today. Um, it's just yeah. what we build, why we build it, and who we build it for. That side of things starts to change. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some new areas of expertise that I think technologists might want to think about. So, for example, getting into ML ops or model ops, for example, understanding how to productionize uh, a model or how to expose that model across the organization. Um for re reuse, I think some of those types of thinking are really important, perhaps a little bit more influence uh, or, or, or kind of consideration of data engineering and how we how we store and handle that type of data. Um, but that, to some extent, that, that's a centralized capability that some people may choose to mm -hmm. work in. 
for the majority of people working digital products is going to be the consumption of those things through APIs. So to some extent, it is business as usual, just with some more tools that are available to support. So um, anytime I'm speaking with um, senior leaders in any business about what does this mean for our people, I really do double down on understand what your vision for your business is, what your strategy is, and how AI can enable that kind of thing. might mean that you start to evolve uh, your existing products, you start to build slightly different products from what you've been building before, um, but many of the people that you have in your teams are the same people that you're going to continue to need going into the future. Um, the key thing, yeah. and you mentioned it earlier, Nicole, um, Rebecca, is psychological safety. These people need to know and understand that their roles are still important and there's, that they're going to be needed for a much longer period of time. So to summarise, you know, the strategic thinking, creative thinking, um, being maybe a willingness to experiment as well and just yeah. that kind of like flexibility to your approach. Then in terms of other skills, you know, model ops, um, data engineering, and then at the leadership side, you know, that renewed focus on strategy and vision that yeah. why and how and where we're going and then communicating yeah. that down throughout your organization is going to be something that's absolutely vital to succeed. Yeah, I think the big shift there is traditionally we've been in a position where we say we can either have software with very fixed inputs and very fixed outputs or we can have a human, an expert human, whether it's in a dealership or you know whatever, who can speak to humans and figure out what they need, what they want, and, and support them. We've now got a third option on the in-between, which is giving us the scale that we would get from software, but with the expertise that we would get from the human. Um, that, that middle situation, that's a new category of software that we've never had to think about before. But if you're a leader and you're thinking about vision, strategy, what do we build, why do we build it, how does this support our core business? That middle category that's just come out now, that's really, really important. Um, and the people who've been building the system so far, it's probably going to be those same people that are going to build these going forward, just with a layer of, of model ops, data engineering and so on to support that. And how can businesses then foster creativity alongside AI systems? Like, what have you seen has worked really well in Oracle and some of the other businesses that your teams are supporting? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really, a really good question. And, you know, creativity, innovation is systemic. You know, you have to create an environment where people don't feel like they'll be persecuted for guessing something wrong. Um, you know, you're not going to be particularly creative or particularly innovative um, if you're worried about things going wrong. Failure is a core part of that creative process. You know, you have to learn, you have to experiment, you have to do new things. Um, and this is another thing. I think it goes back a little bit as well to we were talking a, a while ago around planning versus fast-moving, agile, nimble teams. Um, if you've got fast-moving, agile, nimble teams, they have... The, they have the speed and the fluidity to be able to experiment and try things out. You know, if it's going to take you three months to try something out, then that's probably quite a big investment, quite, quite worrisome. Yeah. Whereas if you've developed the capabilities, the speed and the, the sensitivities within your people to try something out over two or three days, to be able to structure an experiment in a way where um, they can get feedback from customers as to whether or not they would use it or feedback from technologists as to whether or not it's viable, then you're in a position where you can be much more creative and do many more things. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So it's in some ways it's kind of counterintuitive because we've got a, a market just now where uh, there are financial constraints which would push organisations typically into more planning uh, and more uh, cost constraint approaches because they want certainty. They don't want to know where things can go wrong. Whereas at the same time, you've got a very volatile market with a new technology that's going to create a, a huge amount of disruption. And that really depends upon smaller, fast-moving, agile, creative teams. Um, and those two things, I think this is the biggest challenge for leaders just now, is how do you balance those things? Where are the right places to put cost-constraint methods in place? Where are the right places to allow creativity to be fostered, fast-moving teams that can experiment freely and not worry about failure. Um, you really have to push the boat out if you if you want to adopt these these new types of approaches and and uh, and really be able to create and innovate. Um, so yeah, I think that is that's a big challenge. Um, you, the positive yeah. that I would say from that is anywhere you've got any any constraints, you know, great design happens within constraints. So I, I would say where possible, have these fast moving teams, but share the constraints with them. You have a week to see what you can do, or you have this much of a financial runway to see if we can improve the customer experience. Uh, and don't expect something that's production ready. You know, it could be anything from some uh, some paper experiments through to something that's really just a, a, a kind of low fidelity coded prototype, but allow that creativity to come through from the people and help them understand that it's okay to try new things. So it sounds like the organisations that are going to make the most of all of this are, you know, not just those that have the psychological safety, but where the leaders really understand the appetite for risk or their attitude to risk, um, the opportunity cost of not doing something and are comfortable with the decisions they're making. Because it is a trade-off, especially when there are limited resources and technology budgets have been cut. So that's... um, I think an important thing to consider because when you have that level of risk, you also need to consider it's not just, it's not just are these people the right people to deliver it, but you have to then think about what is the best way of delivering it to minimize the risk. And that might not be what you thought it was when you start out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think there's a, there's going to be a really, interesting challenge that plays out over the next next couple of years, which is quite often we find that the the fastest moving, most innovative um, businesses are small startups because they don't have all of the legacy that they need to evolve. They don't have to turn a, a massive uh, a massive ship. Um, and you think back to 2008, for example, the last uh, major financial downturn, uh, the smartphone came out right at that time. Um, and you started getting things like Airbnb and your know, Task Rabbit and various different and um, Uber and various different things cropping up. Um, what's different, I think, this time is the large organisations that are thinking about AI. They've got proprietary data. Um, the large language models. If you if you just have uh, an application that is a thin wrapper around an existing large language model, you really don't have much of a protective moat. Um, so while the smaller businesses will be able to move fast and innovate, they don't have proprietary data. So everything that they're doing can be replicated really quite easily somewhere else. There isn't a moat there. Whereas for the enterprises, they might not be able to move quite as quickly. But what they will have, um, just through uh, legacy and history, 
uh, our, our existing customer base is proprietary data. Um, yeah. So how they integrate that proprietary data with a large language model to achieve something really interesting and exciting, um, that might be slower, but it might be a, a more powerful innovation as opposed to the fast-moving um, startups where they might come up with something really new and unique, but unless they proactively think about ways of gathering and integrating uh, the proprietary data into what they're doing, um, it probably doesn't have a shelf life. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how those dynamics play out um, this time around. Yes, because uh, from my perspective, I can definitely see how that is going to give enterprise companies a real advantage in like sales and growth. Um, if they leverage it effectively, you know, get the personalization appropriate, understand, you know, just develop a much deeper understanding of their customers and prospects, they're a huge advantage. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, I, I got an email in from OpenAI uh, a couple of days ago saying that I think next week they're going to launch their, their store, their, uh, their GPT store. That I think that's a really interesting step forward because straight away you're seeing a number of new businesses that have cropped up over the last year. Um, for example, writing tools that are using an LLM to produce um, new content. Suddenly with the introduction of a GPT store, anybody can create and publish that kind of thing publicly. So it's a great example yeah. of those writing tools weren't using proprietary data. They were just packaging things up in a, a slightly different way, but that most isn't there. Um, so if, if you're an enterprise, if you're a leader in an enterprise, think about the data, not in the sense of you need to go through a big major, uh, cleanup operation so that you can do the AI with the data, but instead just how do you integrate your data effectively into solutions that are enabled by AI so that you achieve something really unique? Interesting. Now, before we go, I recently ran a survey asking my network if like, when they were interviewing, they asked candidates if and how they used AI at work. I, I think that is a really important thing to understand and get a sense of from anybody at any level that's coming in. And the overwhelming majority said not yet. So the options were yes or no or not yet. You obviously have been thinking about this for some time, um, you know, for a few years. What, what would be the top kind of questions that you would recommend you ask a developer at interview about AI? Like what would be the, the rapid fire ones that you would want to understand more about? Yeah. Um, so I want to understand how a developer, um, especially once you're moving into the slightly more experienced roles, how they think about building quality into the software. Uh, we've mentioned automated testing, continuous delivery, continuous integration, uh, how they think about DevOps, um, what are some of the sources of inspiration that they they pull from. Um, those are definitely um, questions that I would have called on 10 years ago and I, I would call on today as well. How they think about these things is, is for me, uh, absolutely critical. Um, I would probably extend that now to ask about, um, do they use AI as part of their development workflow? Um, whether they do or don't probably wouldn't be the killer question, the, the killer answer for me just now. Uh, it would be the follow-up. So if you don't, why don't you? And if you do, what has your experience been? Um, you know, if someone, if someone were to say to me that they've never used AI in development at all, you know, many people haven't. I've actually been really quite struck by how many developers are, are quite uh, kind of slow to move towards that. I don't know whether that's an identity thing, you know, like uh, 
the the taxi drivers from GPS came out and they were adamant they weren't going to use GPS. You, you know, there's maybe a bit of that kind of mentality in there. So I wouldn't ever rule anybody out because they haven't used the AI, but I would want to understand the logic around it. Um, why haven't they used it? Why haven't they engaged with it? Um, I, I think that would be quite quite an interesting thing to learn. Yeah, I, I, th- I th- you, obviously you can ask people. Well, you can, obviously you can't um, discriminate as long as they've maybe just not had the opportunity to do something. Absolutely, and, you know that's that is not going to help you there. But yes, I think I think over time we will see interviews being less competency and experiential focused and much more around aptitudes and critical thinking and culture. Yeah. So thanks so much. This has been absolutely fascinating as ever and really insightful. I think there's a lot to think about and certainly you know, companies where they have got that data and are looking to leverage it, they need to they need to get cracking on how they're going to maximize it so that they do maintain that advantage. But also the startups I think need to really use the agility that they have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me today. The previous episode, if anyone wants to go back and listen to it, was episode five, How Can Enterprise Companies Leverage AI? And Gary, I'm sure we will speak again in the future. Great to see you, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Lucent Perspective. I'm Rebecca Hastings, founder and director at The Lucent Group, a tech sector executive search and talent consultancy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. If you're a company looking to hire top technology leaders or you'd like to discuss your next move, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or send me an email to rebecca at thelistengroup.co.uk. Thanks again for listening today.